Well, good morning and welcome again to Redeeming Grace Church. It's good to be with you to worship this morning in lifting our voices in praise to our God and King. And now we're going to open God's Word and dive into that. And Vanessa is going to be reading our sermon text this morning out of Mark chapter 1. So listen to God's Word. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we praise you today. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you've done and what you are doing. And Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit, that as we look at your word this morning, that you would awaken our hearts and our minds. God, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Help us, God, to set our gaze on Jesus today. We pray this in his name. Amen. Man, I do. And Mark said, we love kids here. I love seeing these families up here. I've known them for a long time, and uh, it's just fun to see them dedicate their families, their kiddos to the Lord. I've got four kids myself, and uh, my son Isaac just turned nine this past week. And Isaac's a fun kid. He's got a ton of energy, and he's fun to be around. He's been an articulate kid for pretty much his whole life. He talked pretty early. In fact, one of his first full sentences at 22 months old was, I want a donut right now. So naturally, on his birthday this week, we got donuts before he went off to school, which he had asked if he could skip that day, and I politely declined his request. You know, first words make for good memories, but when we tell stories and we get introduced to different people within a story, first words matter a lot because they set the stage, they set the scene for the person who's speaking them. The first words we hear from someone tell, the, tell us about him or her. And that's certainly the case with Jesus. Two weeks ago, we began a new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, a book of the Bible where the chief goal is to show us who Jesus is and to help us understand what it means to be one of his followers. So far, we've been through the first 13 verses of this story that Mark is telling, but we've yet to hear from Jesus himself. And much of what's been covered so far has acted sort of as a a prologue to this cosmically epic tale that Mark is telling. But as we come to our text today, we get to hear Jesus's first full sentence, not as a child, but as Mark introduces him to us. The words matter. They can build up or tear down. They can guide or lead astray. They can inform or deceive. And these first 18 words that Mark ascribes to Jesus, they matter. 
They matter because they not only provide a, a banner statement for who Jesus is and what he came to do, but they also have bearing on our daily life and eternity. See, once we hear these words of Jesus, we have to do something with them. So today, I want us to hear them. Whether that's for the first time in your life, maybe you've never heard these words before, or maybe it's for the 2,200th time in your life. No matter where you're at, though, I want us to hear what Jesus has to say to us with fresh ears and look at him as the speaker of these words with fresh eyes. I want us to hear them and respond accordingly. Because in them, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, is an opportunity to experience real hope and real life now and forever. So let's jump into Mark chapter 1. And may God bless the preaching of his word. A simple question that was posed the first week that we began this series that we can ask throughout this series as we're walking through the gospel of Mark is what do we learn about Jesus from this text? If Mark's goal is to help us to see Jesus, to show him to us, then we should be asking, well, what am I learning about him? It's a simple question, but it's also a profound question. And I don't want any of us to assume along the way that we already know the answer, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, that we'd come with a childlike faith to look at Jesus and ask, what am I learning about him here? So with that question in mind, let's lean in and seek to answer it from these few verses today. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in verses 14 and 15, where we hear the words of the king. Look at verse 14 again. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, there's a lot going on in this one verse. The first thing that we take note of is that a transition is happening. Mark is seeking to show us that something new is taking place. Not just a new topic, but a new movement in God's plan. His plan of redemption, his plan of rescue. See, John the Baptist has been front and center so far in this story. He's been announcing something, this news, the fact that Jesus is coming, the Messiah is coming, and he's been baptizing people at the Jordan River, including, as we saw last week, baptizing Jesus himself in the Jordan River. But now, Mark says, John has been arrested. He doesn't tell us the circumstances of his arrest. We'll find a little bit more out about that later in Mark chapter 6. But what we're seeing in this one little phrase here, now after John was arrested, is what John himself said needed to happen. In John chapter 3, verse 30, John says, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. I need to fade into the background and let Jesus take center stage. Now there's also a bit of foreshadowing going on here. If we think about it, the forerunner, John, is arrested. What's going to come of the Messiah then that he's announced? Mark then tells us that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God. And the fact that he comes into Galilee is important, and we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Because first, I want us to look at the content of this good news. The content of this good news that Jesus is proclaiming, that he's preaching, that he's heralding. Mark tells us what the content is with these 18 important words. The first words we hear from Jesus. Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
See, when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he isn't speaking of time in the sense of chronology, like finishing a semester or finishing up a work week or experiencing a vacation or a birthday. The Greek word here is not chronos, where we get the word chronology from, but kairos. And that word has the sense of a specific and particular moment in time that is so significant that it defines and affects everything after it. So when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he's speaking of time in the sense of a line in the sand moment. Like I'm, I'm drawing a line here and now everything after this is going to be different when we cross over that line. He's introducing a new era, era a tipping point, a turning point for all of humanity. So what does he mean by that? I think for us to understand how significant this is, why kairos is the word here, we have to go back to the beginning, like literally the beginning. In Genesis chapters one, we see God call everything into existence by the power of his word. Everything out of nothing, he brings the world into existence. And at the pinnacle of his creation, he creates Adam and Eve, the first man and woman who bear his image. And he places them in this garden to live with him in community and relationship where he is the king ruling over them with kindness and grace and for them to follow him and work with him to cultivate the world that he's made. We find out in Genesis chapter three that Adam and Eve, instead of submitting themselves to God and his kind rulership, decide they can be their own king and their own queen, that they don't need God to be over them that they can do this on their own, that God's trying to keep them captive and hold them down, but if they want to experience real freedom, then they can just go do their own thing. And so they declare independence from God and reject his authority. And what that does is not what they hope. Instead of experiencing freedom, they experience enslavement to their sin and the breaking and the fracturing of the relationship they have with God and the fracturing of creation itself. Sin enters into the world. And as we go through the rest of scripture, we see that sin and its effects unfold in all kinds of different ways. Murder, broken relationships, disease, difficulty, suffering, everything that you can think of that is bad in this world is a result of that moment of rebellion that Adam and Eve said, when I don't need you, God, I want to be my own God. God's people are tempted in different ways, and God is faithful all along the way to call them back to himself. They experience slavery in Egypt, and he sends a mediator to rescue them out of that in Moses. To give them direction for life, he gives them his law to say, this is what it looks like to live life with me, follow after me, and they take that, but they struggle to follow it and obey it along the way, eventually ending up in exile, removed from their place and their home. But in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, we see a glimmer of hope where God says in the midst of pronouncing consequences for their sin and rebellion, he says, one day, one day, the seed of Eve will bruise the head of the serpent. Even as the serpent tries to bruise the heel of this seed, it's a glimmer of hope of a redeemer, of someone who's going to come and fix this problem. And what we see throughout scripture from beginning up into this point is the God whose main way of describing himself, the main way of being described in scripture is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We see him working his plan of redemption for his people that he spoke of starting in Genesis 3.15 and all throughout scripture that he spoke of and promised again and again and again. See, the people of God have been looking for, they've been longing for rescue and redemption. They, they've been looking for relief 
from the oppression they're experiencing at this point in time by foreign and oppressive powers, the Roman Empire. They've been looking for God to do what he's done for them again and again. They're looking for God to intervene on their behalf. And now Jesus says, it is here. It is here. The good news of God is that the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. Everything's about to change. Jesus can declare that the kingdom of God is at hand, not because he's been told that. He can declare that it's at hand, not because he has some insider information. Jesus isn't simply a prophet announcing the kingdom. He's the king himself. The kingdom is near because Jesus is here. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what the initial reaction to what Jesus says is for the people he's announcing this to in Galilee. But we know that what Jesus means and what people expected in regards to the king and his kingdom of this Messiah, this rescuer coming, was not the same. And we'll see that fleshed out more as we go through the Gospel of Mark. But what we can say is that when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he's talking more about God's reign than God's realm. That this isn't so much about borders and boundaries. See, God has always been king. He's always been the sovereign over all of creation. But when Jesus says the kingdom is at hand, what he's telling us is that God's redemptive rule over the entirety of his creation, which has been broken by sin, his redemptive rule beginning with the hearts and lives of people made in his image is coming to fruition because Jesus has come to dwell among us as one of us to rescue us. I mean, this is epically huge news, amazing news, earth-shattering, cosmic-shaking kind of news. So this brings us back to that opening line, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee to proclaim this news. Galilee is in the north of Israel. Galilee and its towns are the country to the big city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of everything for God's people. It's where the temple was. It's where the most prominent religious leaders were. It's where the most important festivals and feasts took place for God's people. So think about this. If Jesus is the king of the kingdom, and this is a line in the sand moment, not only for the people of Israel, but for all of humanity, telling us that the kingdom of God is here. The best news you could ever hear is here. Why in the world is he announcing such huge news in a place like Galilee and not Jerusalem? I mean, if this were today... It'd be like Jesus showing up in Martinsburg, West Virginia to announce the kingdom of God or somewhere else in Appalachia when we would expect or think, well, the best place for you to do that is clearly in the D.C. metro area, right? I mean, this is where people of power live and work. This is where the news cameras are. If you want to share news like this, the world is watching this city, not Martinsburg. Why would he do something like this? I mean, if he came here today, we'd expect him to be in D.C. live streaming the whole thing. But that's precisely why he does what he does. See, the people expected a politically triumphant Messiah King to come into the center city and focal point and place of all religious activity and to come with pomp and circumstance and a display of his power and authority to put down their oppressors and to raise them up and rescue them. 
So to show up instead in Galilee upends their expectations, flips them on their head. It points to the reality that not only is he doing something different, but again, he's doing something new. See, the kingdom of God is an inverted kingdom. It's upside down from what we would expect when we compare it to the expectations of the world. And he begins to show us that by first bringing it not to the powerful, not to the elite, but to a place and a people of obscurity. And what does he tell them? What does he tell us in this? He doesn't say the kingdom of God is at hand, so take up arms with me. Let's go. He doesn't say the kingdom of God is at hand, so here's my political plan to silence and overthrow those we don't like. No, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this good news. These are the words of the king. But they're not just for history's sake, not just to communicate information. They communicate a powerful, life-changing message that has enormous implications for these first hearers and enormous implications for us now. Because this wasn't just a declaration for the people of Israel, but people from every tribe and every language and every nation. See, the core problem for humanity isn't circumstantial. It isn't the things that happened around us. The core problem of humanity is our innate desire to self-rule. That we want to be in charge. That we want to call the shots for our life. That we want to sit on the throne of our life with the crown on our head and scepter in our hand to dictate the laws that we think should be followed and the ones we want to obey and do what we want to do. We want to rule ourselves And that's the root of all other problems and issues in our world, but it's also rebellion because God alone is the sovereign ruler. And that's for our good, that God is in charge and not us because the reality is you and I do not have the capacity or ability to be self-sovereigns. God didn't make us that way. Humanity experiences the natural consequences of our rebellion, but what all of humanity deserves for that rebellion is death and the just wrath of God. But the good news that Jesus is beginning to preach in this moment is that there's a way for rebels like you and me to find entrance into the kingdom of God. It's not by way of paying an entrance fee, though. Jesus doesn't tell us to do that. He doesn't say, so here's how you get into the kingdom of God. Just do more good things than bad things. Jesus doesn't say, pray a prayer or check a box on a card, or throw your stick in the fire at summer camp. What does he tell us? He tells us something much deeper than that. He says, repent and believe. To repent is to turn away from your sin. It's to turn away from rebellion and turn to God in his good ways. That means that repentance isn't just being sorry for your sin. Repentance isn't merely confessing your sin. Both sorrow and confession are good things to do, but they're only the beginning of repentance. Genuine repentance is a change of direction. If I'm heading this way in rebellion against God, repentance is turning the other way and heading in towards the direction of God in his ways. It's a change of direction and affection where I'm loving God more than I'm loving self. See, because we have sought to be self-sovereigns, because we've sought to establish our own kingdoms, what that makes us in relation to God is his enemies. Repentance, though, then, 
is laying down our allegiance to self. It's laying down our allegiance to a false kingdom and aligning ourselves to God, the king and his kingdom. This is a kairos, line in the sand moment. Because Jesus is inviting, Jesus is calling all who will hear and all who believe not to get their ticket to heaven punched and go on living life however they would like. He's calling you and me to total surrender. Total surrender. See, repentance then isn't merely a turning away from sin. It's turning away from putting your hope, putting your confidence in paths and people who promise you peace and prosperity. It's turning away from trying to be the king and ruler of your own life. He's calling all who will hear and all who believe to total surrender and to accept the terms of peace that he's offering to you. To be a part of his kingdom. It's the only means to enter it. Which is why he also says to believe. To believe in the gospel is to believe Jesus is who he says he is that he's the only means of rescue, that he's the only means of redemption. Now, at this point, when Jesus says this, he obviously hasn't gone to the cross yet to pay for our sin, but Jesus knows that he will. That's why he came. It's part of a plan established before and outside of time that he would come to do this. So the cross of Christ is the only means of peace with God for people who've rebelled against him. Because it's on the cross that the wrath of God is satisfied. Jesus takes that on for us as a substitute for us as he dies in our place. Now the original hearers of these words of the king wouldn't quite get that until Jesus had died and rose again. But Mark's original readers are a whole lot like us. They've already heard the news that Jesus has been crucified and raised. Now they're reading about it. They're reading about how it happened and what happened, and we get the same perspective as they do, looking back. See, the good news Jesus is proclaiming, the good news that he's calling for belief in is the totality of who he is. What we learn about Jesus here is that he is the king, and because the king has come, everything changes. Now, Jesus most definitely said more than these 18 words, but Mark, what he wants to do, what he wants us to see and hear is that this is the highlight, the foundation of Jesus' preaching and his ministry, the announcement of the kingdom and the necessity of repenting and believing. And what we see in this next section is what that looks like in real life. We see the way of the king. Let's look at verses 16 through 20. I'll read them together. This is passing along the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now Mark is most certainly telling us this piece of information to continue to advance the story. He's letting us in on what's happening here as Jesus's ministry is unfolding. And these men in particular will become very prominent in this story throughout this gospel and beyond that. But I think another reason Mark is sharing this with us now is that it serves as an illustration. See, once again, we see Jesus is doing something new. He announces the kingdom and its entrance requirements in an unexpected place, but now we see it play out in an unexpected way. 
He's setting, to, setting out to establish a new community of people, a people who will submit to God's good rule and reign. But his first followers aren't who we would expect them to be. They aren't the religious scholars or teachers or priests. No, he calls a small group of Galilean fishermen. And what does he call them to do? Follow me. Follow me. See, what Mark is beginning to show us is an illustration of what life looks like when someone repents and believes. In short, it means they follow Jesus. See, inherent with this call is movement. To follow after Christ is, it requires movement toward life and away from death, toward light and away from darkness, toward God and away from self. And that's exactly what Andrew and Peter and James and John do. They literally drop what they're doing and start walking with Jesus. I appreciate Mark uses this word often throughout the text. He says, immediately. They didn't go consult anyone else. They didn't think, well, it's Tuesday. Can we do this on Thursday? He says they immediately start to follow him when Jesus calls them. They drop everything they're doing and go after him. Their jobs, they set aside. Their family, they set aside. But there's more going on here than just the radical nature in which this new part of their lives begins, which will never be the same for them. See, the call to follow is in contrast to the common practice of rabbis in this day. A rabbi is a religious teacher, and they would have disciples. They would have followers. But a rabbi wouldn't go seek out followers. Followers, people who wanted to learn from the rabbi, would come to the rabbi and say, can I follow you? Can I learn from you? Can I shadow you. Jesus is doing the exact opposite of that. See, what we learn here is that Jesus is not only king, but he's a pursuer. These men have likely already encountered Jesus in some way or heard about him, but they weren't necessarily looking to follow him. No, he pursued them. He came for them, and he called them to be his followers, to learn from him, to be with him. Maybe you've heard this part of the story before. Maybe it's new to you. But we have to understand that what happens with these men is an earth-shattering reality if you think about their daily lives, if you think about their family history, if you think about their culture. This is their family business they're participating in, their means of their livelihood and how they're going to care for their families. And in an instant, they leave it all and follow after Jesus. It would have been unheard of to do something like this to walk away from resources, to walk away from family in this moment. But in this, we get, we start to get a small picture of what following Christ looks like. But you know what? This only happens because of who's doing the calling. I mean, if you think about it, if I walk over to University Mall right now and I go by Taco Bamba or Fat Tuesdays and say, follow me, nobody's dropping their taco or their beer. Right, that'd be ridiculous for me to go try and do something like that. If I pressed the issue, the police might get called. That's not what happens here, though. When the king of kings calls, people respond. People respond. Let's not also miss that when he calls them to follow him, he tells them that he's going to do something with them. He's going to make them fishers of men. Now, this is likely a reference back to Jeremiah chapter 16, where Jeremiah says there will be fishers and hunters of men who will call people back from idolatry to worship the one true God. 
And we'll see as the gospel of Mark unfolds, they will indeed be used to call people out of darkness and into the light of God and his grace. God's going to use them in a unique way to do this, to see the, the church of God, the church of Jesus started and, and, and spread throughout all of, of space and time as he's sharing this good message, this good news with them. So there's a uniqueness for, this, for them in this, but it's also just a natural overflow of being a follower of Jesus for all of us too. That, that we too, if we are repenting, if we are believing, if we are following Jesus, we can call others to do the same. When Jesus called these four men to follow him, it changed everything for them. Everything. But it wasn't easy then, and it isn't easy now. See, to follow Jesus is to repent and believe, because to follow Jesus is a radical renunciation of self-governance. It's a call to deny yourself and take up your cross and live life with Jesus. It's a, to step off that throne of your life and give Jesus his rightful place as king and Lord. This is the way of the king. It's what it means to be a Christian. It's what it means to be a disciple. Colossians chapter one, verses 13 and 14, two of my favorite verses in scripture. Paul writes this, talking about God. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's where you and I reside, in this domain of darkness, enslaved to our sin, captive to it. But he, God, delivers us from this domain of darkness and does what? He transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God does this work. He removes us from one place, and he places us in a new kingdom with a new citizenship and a new king to follow. And when that happens, we're called to submit now to the ways of the king and his kingdom. That means that the laws and ways and rules of the old kingdom are not transferable. We don't continue to live life the way we once did in the old kingdom. That's what Jesus, when he calls these first disciples, is calling them to do when he says, follow me, and they leave everything and follow after him. I mean, we can't seek to live life in two different capacities following two different sets of rules. That'd be like me deciding if I go over to England, we drive where? In America, we drive on the... What side of the road? The, the right side of the road, the right way to drive the car down the road. <clears throat> and we sit on the, I know this, <laughs> I know, <laughs> I see you. <laughs> we sit on the left hand side of the car. If we go over to England, we drive on the left side of the road and sit on the right side of the car. If I go over to England right now and say, you know what, I don't care, I'm gonna do it the way I wanna do it. It's not gonna end well for me or the people that I'm encountering on the road. We can't take whatever our rules and laws are and just transfer them to a new place as if that's okay. And Jesus says, repent and believe. When he says, follow after me, that's what he's calling us to do. Walk in his ways. So I didn't really understand this for a long time that Jesus wanted the totality of my life. I grew up in the church. I heard the gospel at a young age and believed and was baptized. But either I wasn't taught this or I wasn't paying attention that when Jesus saved me, it wasn't just so I could go to heaven. He rescued me out of darkness and intended to transform my life. See, I'd been compartmentalizing my life. Started following Christ and would say, Jesus is the only way for me to be with God, but that's that part of my life. This part of my life, school, relationships, extracurricular activities, time, money, research, any of those things, that's my own stuff. So I put... My life in buckets and compartments. Jesus wasn't over all of those things. 
Maybe some of you have been in that place. Maybe some of you are in that place right now. But by God's grace, I started to get this toward the end of high school. I remember in particular, I went to a summer camp between my junior and senior year of high school. And that was a Kairos moment for me, a line in the sand moment for me where I understood that Jesus wanted me to completely surrender to him. And then I went off to college and by God's grace met some other young men who were in a similar place of starting to understand what it means to follow after him. And it was a slow process. If you hung out with some of those guys, they could tell you some stories of me slowly getting it, slowly seeing that when Jesus said repent, when Jesus said believe, when Jesus said follow me, he actually like really meant it. It wasn't just an inspirational statement to put on a wall. No, this is about my whole life belonging to him as Lord and King. Jesus' call to follow me shows us that repenting and believing isn't just about forgiveness of sin, it's about getting Jesus. Reorienting your life, all of it, around who he is. And we'll see that play out through different ways and different people in the Gospel of Mark. But something we'll also see is that these first followers, they didn't get it right all the time after this moment. Yes, there's a line in the sand. Yes, they drop everything and immediately follow Jesus, but everything isn't just perfect and right along the way. They didn't get it all. I didn't either, and I still don't. See, repenting and believing and following is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing reality because the world and our flesh and the devil continue to try and pull us back to the old way of living in the old kingdom to make you think that you can compartmentalize your life And you can go back to those old ways. It's why Martin Luther famously wrote as the first theses of his 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. In other words, we never move on from the first words of Jesus. So what do we do with this? Jesus' proclamation is not for the sake of information. Not then, not now. It's a summons from the king. It's an invitation to new life with him, a summons, an invitation from the king that requires a response from us. So let me ask you, how are you responding? How are you responding? We see how the first disciples responded. What about you? Are you repenting? Are you believing? Are you following Jesus? Not in word, but with your life. My guess is is that some of us can definitively say, no, I'm not. And a lot of us can say, man, I'm trying. I'm trying to. For both groups, there's grace. Because the good news of God is still good news for you. See, Jesus is not some heartless dictator or oppressive ruler. And we see throughout Mark that he's a benevolent king who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's calling people like you. He's calling people like me to come to him and to walk in his good ways and to find a rest for our soul as we do. You might ask, how do I know what it means to actually follow him? I mean, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, they could literally walk behind Jesus. Well, you and I have his word, his living and active word. We're gonna spend time learning all about Jesus and the gospel of Mark and what life with him looks like. We If we've repented and believed, we have his spirit dwelling with inside of us, his spirit who he calls a helper and a counselor who can empower us to know what it means to follow after Jesus. And we have his people. We're in this together, on this journey with Jesus together. 
For these first disciples, following Jesus meant leaving their work. It meant leaving their family business. They dropped everything to go after him. And following Jesus, for some of you, might mean some of the same things. It might mean leaving your job or having to choose between Jesus and your family. But that's not necessarily the case for everyone. We have to be careful. We don't read this here and think this is prescriptive of how this looks. But what we can see from this, which certainly means is that nothing can be in the way of following him. Nothing can be an obstacle to submitting the entirety of your life to him as king and Lord. So if you're struggling with doing that right now, what's stopping you? What might be in your way right now? What obstacles are keeping you from truly and genuinely following Jesus? Church, Jesus is a pursuing king. He pursued these first followers and he invited them to himself. And if you're sitting here today or you're watching online that he's doing that in your life too, he's pursuing you. You're not here by accident. So are you listening to his voice? He is, after all, the one who says to you now, follow me. How will you respond?